0: Again, before we read, um, before we pray and read, just a reminder that we will be ending our reading at verse 8 of Mark 16. And we'll uh, discuss the details of verses 9 through 20 this evening. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our need even when we don't. You know how much help it takes for us natural people to understand supernatural things. So we humble ourselves now saying we need you. We pray that you would assist us by your spirit, that what we hear, what I say and and what we meditate on would glorify your name and be true to your word by the power of your spirit. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Hear God's word from Mark 16 verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. You may have heard just recently an AI Jesus, an artificial intelligence Jesus, has launched. Preaching 24-7 and answering questions please don't go ask AI Jesus for help. (laughs) One person rightly commented that this AI Jesus is a fake God crafted in human likeness and the advice and the answers that the artificial intelligence offers are rooted in cultural bias and humanistic feel-goodism. While the world is remaking Jesus into a person who offends no one, and supports whatever their current cause is, we turn our eyes today to an ancient truth of who Jesus is, rooted not in cultural tides but in the eternal truth of God Himself, revealed to us by the person of Jesus and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Gospel of Mark has been asking the question, Who is Jesus? And it opened with this statement, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For the last 15 chapters, as the disciples and the religious leaders misunderstand and fail to see who Jesus is, Mark has shown us little by little who Jesus is, the person of Jesus and his divinity. Today, at the close of Mark's gospel, we see the sheer power of this God-man, not as a pixel construction, but as the most real being in existence. And there can be no more questions about what has been meant by Jesus' ministry so far in the book of Mark, or of His healing, or of His rebukes of the religious leaders, or His claims to be king, and all this. And in the face of the resurrection, we see Jesus for who He is. The Omnipotent One, seated at the right hand of the Father in all power and glory and authority, the One on whom history hinges and upon whom salvation rests. He is alive. And he will come again to reign completely over every single other power that has ever dared to compete with him. So as we look at this Jesus and the resurrection this morning, we'll look at it. First of all, as the women come to discover the resurrection. So part one is discovering the resurrection. Then we'll look at the consequences of the resurrection. And lastly, the demands of the resurrection. We'll spend most of our time here looking at the discovery of the resurrection as we find it in our passage here in Mark 16. Mark is giving a very brief account of the resurrection, the historical account of what happened. It's much shorter than the other Gospels, but he's doing so very pointedly to highlight who Jesus is. He starts off by telling us that the Sabbath was past. Sabbath for the Jews was Saturday. Jesus had died on Friday afternoon. What kind of worship was that Sabbath? What kind of grief dominated that day? We can only imagine. We know that the disciples were huddled together in a locked room somewhere, afraid that they too might be hunted down by those who killed Jesus. But these three women who had endured with Jesus since the time that he was ministering in Galilee, those who were eyewitnesses to his death and two of whom were eyewitness to his burial... Here they come to the tomb. The fact that Mark tells us that these women are bearing witness gives credence to the accuracy of Mark's story. He's not interested in creating a false narrative with high-profile witnesses. He describes how God revealed the grandest of all miracles to the women first. And they went and bought spices to anoint Jesus' body. They did this out of devotion. This was not an embalming technique. Instead, it was to show how much they honored Jesus their friend, Jesus. And you know, they went to the tomb and they didn't get to anoint his body. But you may remember that the woman with the alabaster flask already did. God had planned that Jesus would rise. And so his burial had to, part, had to happen earlier and it did in chapter 14, verse 8, as Jesus said, this woman has prepared my body beforehand for burial when nobody else was believing that he was actually going to die. So probably after sundown on Saturday, since the Sabbath ended at sundown, the the women went and bought their spices. But at that time, it was too dark to wander outside the city to the tomb. So very early on the first day of the week, Sunday morning, as verse 2 tells us, as the sun was rising, they went to the tomb. And since it was on the resurrection morning that they discovered this tomb, Sunday morning, that's why we're here right now rather than yesterday morning. Ever since Christ rose on Sunday morning, that has become the Lord's day. That is our day of worship and our day of rest, because Jesus rose from the dead on that Sunday morning. Mark tells us the sun had risen as they were coming, which tells us that these women were not confused in the dark. The sun was up. They saw clearly. The last we heard about the sun is that it had been darkened for three hours in midday. And here we're told that the sun is rising as they discover this blessed news of the resurrection. And so they went to the tomb very early. As they approached, although they had prepared the spices for honoring Jesus's body, they expected entirely for Jesus to be dead. And they had overlooked one crucial logistical detail, that massive stone in front of the tomb. So they were questioning on the way How are we going to move that stone? I love the human detail that is in this story. And then they looked up and behold, it was already rolled back. This has written all over it, a supernatural act of God. The stone was moved by God. As we're about to find out, Jesus was raised by God. As we're about to find out, God had sent a messenger right there in the tomb they have stumbled upon a supernatural scene. So they see this young man. Mark describes him as a young man. The other gospel writers explain to us that this young man was in fact an angel. And Mark implies as much too, especially when you see how the women responded in verse five. They were alarmed, Mark says. This is a typical response to those who encounter a divine presence in scripture. So not just the women's response shows us that this was a divine figure, but also the fact that he was dressed in a white robe. Luke tells us specifically that the clothes were dazzling. This may recall the transfiguration when Jesus appeared in these shining robes in chapter 9. And That means this too is a heavenly messenger. And he was sitting on the right hand. Now, of course, other Gospels tell us that there were two angels, one at the head, one at the foot, but there's no contradiction in the stories here. Mark simply focuses in on the one angel and he can therefore make that allusion to power that comes with sitting at the right hand. To sit at the right hand indicates great power and reigning authority. And to sit and to speak as this angel does is to speak with authority, heavenly authority. And his first words to these women were common words from heavenly messengers. You may recall other stories where this was the first word out of the the mouth of the angel. Do not be alarmed. Do not fear. This was a message of heavenly comfort. A message that Jesus has risen. He is not here. He will go before you to Galilee just like He told you. But what about... The scene. Let's step back for a minute. We're so used to hearing the story of these people who encountered a resurrection, an empty tomb. There's a horror to this. There's a gawk factor. There's a shock factor here. These women are utterly terror stricken. We see in verses five through eight. There's a huge weight to encountering a physical body. That has been raised from the dead. By all natural understanding, even for those who had witnessed supernatural miracles throughout Jesus' ministry, they still expected to find a lifeless corpse. Yet what they encountered instead were the results not of a dead Savior, but of a living, eternally reinvigorated body of the man Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We're so accustomed to hearing that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. It becomes meaningless to us to hear that Jesus was raised from the dead because we repeat it so often. Yeah, I know, Jesus rose from the dead. But stop for a minute and consider this. After 40 hours of horrible grief, two probably sleepless nights on the part of these women, on day three of Jesus having been dead, these women come utterly defeated still devoted to Jesus as their friend. They come under the cover of early morning so as not to be targeted by that mob of Jewish leaders who had also killed Jesus, and they come to anoint a dead body. This is the dead body of a dear friend, the one who was supposed to be the hope for Israel, the one that they thought would throw off Rome and reestablish the good old reign of Israel, but who was unjustly killed just days ago. And they find instead an unexplainable scene beyond anything they expected, a messenger from God, evidence that Jesus was indeed alive with his heart pulsing and his lungs breathing and the promise of seeing him again in Galilee. The proclamation in verse 6 defies all natural expectation. The angel says he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Physically, no longer dead. This is hair raising. This creates skin crawling, adrenaline rushing, heart pounding, astonishment. What have they just seen? Mark tells us they were trembling and bewildered. These are women who have seen the unthinkable. We might describe them similarly to those who have experienced who have unexplainable horror experiences and are shaken. Yet of Christ, this is, of course, a peek not into a dark world of spiritualism, but of a heavenly look into the redemptive work of God and the person of Jesus. Listen to some examples so far of people who respond with this trembling and bewilderment. What they're encountering is a mighty act of God. In chapter 4, the disciples saw the wind and the waves bow to Jesus' very words, and they said, Who then is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? And then in chapter 5, those who saw the man with the legion of demons sitting in his right mind after Jesus exercised his authority over him were told, and they were afraid. And then also in chapter 5, the woman whose lifelong ailment was healed in an instant upon contact with Jesus, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. She encountered a mighty act of God. And like those who witness the life restored to Jairus' daughter, were told they were immediately overcome with amazement. And all these. They have encountered the mighty hand of God, but it seems like they expected the tragedy to persist. Because they know the power of the storms and of the sea and of demons. They know the power of sickness and of death. and So they're used to it. So are we. We're used to these painful realities that sin has infiltrated the world. We're used to this death. So we're terrified, we're uncomfortable when we see even something beautiful and good interfere with the chaos we've become used to. If the waves and the wind are powerful, if sin and death are powerful, who is this that is more powerful than they? Now that all these examples in Mark's gospel have witnessed a power greater than the natural world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, they don't know what to do. It doesn't fit their paradigm. It doesn't make sense. These are the kind of things that we just simply label as scientific impossibilities. And we write them off. Can someone actually rise from the dead? We assume the answer before the conversation begins. But naturally speaking, no, no one can rise from the dead. That's why this is not a natural story. This is a supernatural story where life is put back into a dead body. And more than that, this has cosmic and spiritual dimensions that we'll get to in a moment. God raised Jesus from the dead. The most remarkable miracle in history. And these women were the first to discover the empty tomb. They saw the mighty hand of God in action. So to face such an anomaly, naturally inexplicable, only supernaturally comprehensible, shatters the framework of a person and instills utter fear, knowing that he or she has encountered the divine. This is the greatest manifestation of divine power, the most powerful miracle ever, that the one who was condemned to death, bearing the weight of sin for every single believer in all of history, the wrath of God poured out upon him in his crucifixion, seeming to have been conquered by Satan, that he should raise to life again. So with the bewilderment of the women, we must ask ourselves, what can this mean? Let's look at the consequences of the resurrection. To end the book of Mark with fear in verse eight, look at the end of verse eight there. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid to end the book with fear. Some people say there's no way that Mark meant to end there. Let me give you two similar endings from the Old Testament. First of all, the story of Sarah, Abraham and Sarah. Genesis 18 says this. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time? I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it saying I did not laugh for she was afraid. Now the story does continue and God says, oh, but you did laugh. But that phrase for she was afraid carries a lot of weight, especially when you look at the context. This is a promise of life being brought from a dead womb. Isaac from a lifeless place in Sarah's old age. And so, too, Jesus is the one raised from the grave. He is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And to encounter this God redeeming his people, it is proper to say, I am afraid. And there's another story in Genesis 45, the story of Joseph. Joseph had been in all intents and purposes, dead to his family. Remember, his cloak had been brought with blood on it. To his father and to his brothers, he was as good as dead. Yet when the brothers came to Egypt and they saw that he was indeed alive, this was a type of resurrection. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. Why? For they were dismayed at his presence slightly different word very similar meaning same construction and so joseph said to his brothers come near to me please and they came near and he said i am your brother joseph whom you sold into egypt and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for god sent me before you to preserve life as joseph was raised from the dead to his brothers and his father He had been treated as such because God wanted him to preserve life. And so Jesus comes as the antitype of Joseph and of Isaac, the one who is raised from the dead to preserve life. What Jesus's resurrection means for salvation. So many things. We're going to hit a few things here. First of all, he satisfied divine justice. The wrath of God that must be poured out against sin has been satisfied, and we see that in Jesus' resurrection. The depth of sin is difficult to comprehend. We don't understand how bad sin really is because we downplay it so naturally, but sin is a deep offense. Still, the grace of God goes even deeper because God took into himself the penalty for that sin, the Son bearing the wrath of the Father so that you and I might be brought near in life and in an unparalleled eternal welcome in Jesus We will not face God's wrath because Christ is alive. Second, in his resurrection, this means that Jesus vanquished death and the one who had the power of death. The Old Testament Jews expected the arrival of the messianic victor for the nation. And we see that Jesus came not with national, but with cosmic strength. He defeated the enemy, as Colossians 2 says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As he rose, he conquered all his enemies. And he has won the prize of war. John 6 tells us that Jesus has won a people to himself. We are his prize. And we see with this angel sitting on the right hand in a white robe, this is indicative of Christ's reign. A flashback to his promises earlier in Mark when he said, as, he, as Psalm 110 was quoted in chapter 12, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. As Jesus sits at the right hand, his enemies are submitted to his power. And in chapter 14, Jesus says, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds. Death has no more victory. Not over Christ and not over those who are in Him. First Corinthians 15, the famous chapter about the resurrection, says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But... Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We too have power over death because Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus also justified his people in his resurrection. This used to puzzle me because I thought his sacrifice was what justified and indeed, it takes his death and his resurrection, because if he had not been raised, then he would have just been another man bearing the guilt of sin who was defeated by the sin. But he did not remain dead. He is risen. He is not here. Sin, therefore, has no power over him, nor does it have power over any one of his people. So therefore, we can be declared righteous. We then can be justified. First Corinthians fifteen seventeen tells us that if Jesus had not been raised, we would still be in our sins. But because he has been raised, we no longer are subject to sin or death or the enemy. And Acts 2.24 says it in very concise form. It said, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So we're justified because Christ was raised and Christ gives life graciously to his people because of his resurrection. Ephesians two says, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What a gracious gift to rise with Him, to live in Him, to reign with Him. Sometimes we forget that we stand in grace today. Romans 5 makes that clear. Paul says, because we've been justified, we have access to grace in which We stand access by faith to this grace in which we stand. That means that when you fall short, there's an eternal life that comes to bat for you. When you fall short and you're not enough, grace covers it today. And as Jesus was raised, he also supports us against our enemies First Corinthians 15 again says, for Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So we live now in that victory. Yes, death, physical death may win once, but eternal death will not. Our eternal enemy is powerless. Because we live now in the Spirit who sustains us, that very same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead on that resurrection morning. He gives life to our mortal bodies and will, and we look forward to that last resurrection. And that leads us to the last point. Jesus does assure us of our own resurrection. It's because we are united to Him. Paul says again, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does it mean that he's the first fruits? That means that because he rose, all those who are in him will follow. He's the first one, but he is not the last one to rise. All those in Christ will rise from the dead as well. If you've lost family or friends. Or if you're facing the death of loved ones. And if they have died in Christ. Hear these words of comfort. These are words of comfort and joy. Let it get you excited for the day that we will all rise to new life. Jesus is the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. First Thessalonians 4 says, But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, speaking of those who have died. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. The grave does not have the final say. And Romans 8 tells us that if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, assuming that is true because you believe in Him, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. That is a promise of resurrection. But if you are not in Christ. If you do not believe in Jesus alone for salvation, you do not share this hope. This resurrection into eternal life is only for those in Christ. Yes, we will all be raised on that last day, but only some will be raised to life. Others will be raised to eternal life judgment Acts 24:15 states it simply there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust John 5 says do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment I don't want you to think that there's an easy pass out. You will be raised to death if you do not believe in Jesus. No one has done good on his own. And so we must be raised in what Jesus has done for us. Your faith must be in him. Being in Christ doesn't just give us hope to endure today, though it certainly does that. It gives us a hope beyond this life. Note It's not a hope that we have to climb up and get. This this is actually what makes Christianity distinct from all other belief systems in the world. You have to work your way up. You have to achieve statuses. You have to improve in certain ways. You have to find the right way in order to achieve the promise of all these false religions in the world. But in this unbelievable economy of grace that leaves people in awe and astonishment... That life is brought to you by God himself. He comes down to where we are. He doesn't expect you as someone who's dead in your sin to climb up to the heights of heaven. He graciously descends to us. God himself brings it to where we are, stuck in our sins, and we receive it as a gift. An unearned, undeserved gift of life received by faith. And it is poured out abundantly on all who look to Jesus in faith. Lastly, the demands of the resurrection. These women were commanded to go and tell, yet Mark tells us that they fled and said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Well, of course, we know from other gospel accounts that they did eventually go and tell. Because this gospel account exists. But Mark is highlighting for us. He's really inviting us to step into the feet of the women. To say, yes, you see the terror that the natural world has been turned on its head and the supernatural is at work here. Will you too simply shrink back in fear? Maybe you think you know who Jesus is. <clears throat> this is applicable to every single one of us in this room. I think we need to hear what Pastor Dane Wortland says about the person of Jesus. He challenges us to reconsider our notions of the person of Jesus Christ. He says, have we unintentionally reduced Jesus to manageable, predictable proportions? Have we been looking at a junior varsity, decaffeinated, one-dimensional Jesus of our own making? Thinking we're looking at the real Jesus. Have we snorkeled in the shallows thinking we've now hit bottom on the Pacific? There is a depth to the person of Jesus that we see in his resurrection. That he is God. Mark has been telling us from the beginning... All these questions, is he just John the Baptist? No, he is the greater prophet to whom John the Baptist only bore witness of whom John the Baptist was not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Jesus is not just a prophet who communicates God's words. He is the word of God himself. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No other sacrifice can pay for your sins and no other good deeds can He is the fulfillment of Scripture against all the claims of the religious leaders that were rooted first and foremost in their tradition. Tradition and false religion will not save you. Only Jesus can. He is the healer who gives life to all who look to him in faith, to Jews and to Gentiles. He will not refuse to take away your sin for how wicked you've been nor for how different you might feel you are. He came for the sick not the well. He is the messianic king who possesses the promise to the line of David, the line of Judah. He is the one whose kingdom is not of this world. He is reigning now and it will be seen by all people on that last day when he establishes his reign permanently on this earth. Even if you don't believe it now, you will on that day because it will happen. He is the Son of God, the divine man of whom the Father has said, This is my beloved Son, in him I am well pleased, and He's the one of whom the Roman centurion, the Gentile killer, proclaimed, surely this man was the Son of God. He has always been God, and he is, will always eternally be God. He is the most powerful being in all existence. Greater than sickness. Greater than natural forces, greater than supernatural forces, demonic forces, greater than death itself, greater than Satan, the author of evil, greater than any earthly power, any reputation, any bad relationship, any sin that seems to rear its head within you, any war, any disease, anything. Jesus is greater. As this realization dawned on these women at the tomb on that resurrection morning. So these truths need to dawn on our hearts and our lives. And it demands of you and me to look at Jesus for who He really is and to look to Him in faith. What's incredible is that His power is not reserved for those who you think might deserve it? Remember the last we heard of Peter? He had just denied the Lord three times in the presence of the powerless ones. The disciples have been nowhere to seen, nowhere to be seen in Mark's story. Yet what message does God send by this angel through the women? Tell whom? Tell the disciples and Peter, that's you and me. As often as we turn our back on him, as often as we downplay his power and get confused about who he is, he wants you and me to see that he is alive, that he has been raised. And there's no amount of denying him that will keep him from embracing you when you come in faith. Even Peter, even me, even you. And once you get this news, we pick up that command, go and tell. Go and tell this good news to your neighbors, your neighbors who are just like Peter or worse. The most unlikely people to believe it, tell them. The most undeserving, tell them. And so I'm telling you right now, you undeserving, unbelieving people, come see that Jesus is alive. And he is in resurrection power, pouring life out for his people and carrying us to completion. You who are as undeserving as Peter, hear this good news of the resurrection, which can be your good news of resurrection to eternal life. As we've gone through this journey in the book of Mark, he's carried us on this journey, encountering enough misunderstanding about who Jesus is. Away with the misunderstanding. See him as the heavenly king who has been raised. See him as the divine son of God. See him as the only way your sins could ever be forgiven. The only way you could ever be healed of your sickness, of sin that leads to death. Look at the risen savior as your savior. Believe in him. Awaken your heart. Throw off the chains of death and find eternal life in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who is alive. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what an incomprehensible redemption. This is foolishness to the world, but this is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So would you sink it deep into every heart here? Would we believe that Jesus is enough? That He is alive? And would we find life in Him by your Spirit at work in our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.